Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, May 27th, 2019. That's Memorial Day here in the United States. I'm your host, Kara Santa Maria, and this week we've got a great episode featuring an incredible author. But before we dive into that, I want to thank those of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible, actually each and every week, by pledging your support of the show at patreon.com slash talk nerdy. This week, I want to thank Phil T. Bear, the zombie drummer, David J. E. Smith, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. Thank you all so very much for your support of the show. Okay, let's get right into it. You know, I talk a lot at the top of the show. Let's not do that this week. Um, I'm really excited about this one. I have a chance to sit down with Elaine Weiss. Now, she is the author of an incredible book called The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. Yes, this week we are talking about women's suffrage, and I love it. So without any further ado, here she is, Elaine Weiss. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to talking to you all about the incredible work that you do, including your new book, which I think is now out on paperback, right? Um, It is. The Woman's Hour, The Fight to Win the Vote. And this book has gotten a lot of acclaim. I was just reading recently that the rights were actually sold for a potential TV show. Yes, yes. Um, We are working on that uh, with Amblin Television, which is uh, Steven Spielberg's production company. Um, And Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton is serving as executive producer. She is a great fan of the book. That must be, I mean, I can only imagine first hearing about that after writing the book. What a shock that must have been. Yes, it, it was one of those wonderfully pleasant shocks. <laughs> That's incredible. So, of course, I think readers who have not had the chance yet, hopefully learning about it here on the show, um, will be inspired to see exactly what um, what. Hillary Clinton is also so excited about. So I'd love to start with you before we get into the content to talk a little bit about your work as a writer and a journalist and also what inspired you beyond just, you know, being a woman and (laughs) appreciating the right that we all have to exercise our vote. um, What inspired you to really drill deep into the, the suffrage movement and to learn more about it and really tell that tale? Well, in many ways, Kara, it was the fact that I am a woman who is a very dedicated voter. This is mm-hmm. something my parents drilled into me, um, and I'm very thankful for that. And I thank them in the acknowledgments for doing that. And also, I taught my children, who are adults now, to vote in every election. It's just your responsibility, your privilege, your right. Mm-hmm. And it's extremely important. And so I merrily have voted all these years and realized I didn't know how I had achieved the vote, how American women had not had the vote for many, many, many decades, and then suddenly did have the vote. But it wasn't mm-hmm. sudden at all. And I realized I didn't know when that had happened. I didn't know how that had happened. and. That sent me on a a mission of curiosity out of ignorance. And I, in in starting to to do some research, found 
an incredible story in the Library of Congress, actually. I was researching a different tangent of this story and found a report that explained how the suffrage movement had used a bequest that had been given to them, a large uh, bequest from a woman in New York. It was $2 million. It was a huge amount of money in 1914 when they received it. And in in that um, report, which is in the Library of Congress, it, it talked about the story of what happened in the last state to have to ratify the 19th Amendment before it could become part of the Constitution. And this was such a mesmerizing story that suddenly the the two facets of this came together for me that I realized that I didn't know how how women won the vote. I had asked my my very intelligent friends, hey, do you know how we got the right to vote? And they'd kind of shrug and say, uh, Seneca Falls? You know, that's mm-hmm. sort of the only yeah. thing we know. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And all of that is um, sort of mildly, tangentially correct, (laughs) not really correct. So I did start asking people and realize that no one really knew how this had happened. And this is this huge part of our history. It's the enfranchisement of half of the nation. And we really had never been taught about it adequately. There was very little, when I did a literature search, there was very, very little written on a popular Mm, level, mm -hmm. Uh, not a scholarly level. There have been decades of excellent, wonderful, groundbreaking scholarly work, but very little of that has filtered down to the public. And so my goal in this was to learn for myself how I had been finally granted the right to vote to become a full citizen. And secondly, to tell the story to the to my readers, mm-hmm. um, because this is so important, and we just don't know it. It's not taught in schools very much at all. And if it is, it's sort of in a cartoon kind of, you know, and, and women met at Seneca Falls, and then they picketed, and then they got the vote. Yeah, yeah, it's a very kind of abridged and sanitized exactly. version. And and so that was my inspiration for uh, wanting to write the book. And as I delved deeper and deeper and, and got into the primary research and the secondary research, it just became more and more fascinating and more and more complicated. And yeah. many more themes and... and um, context became so important. So I realized that I now had a very rich story. And luckily, my literary agent fell in love with it immediately. And we, we worked together to, to um, bring it off. Oh, I love that. So I have to tell you kind of from the beginning, similar to when you sort of surveyed your friends and family and asked them what they knew about our, you know, our rights. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably fell 
absolutely in line with those answers that you got. <laughs> I have seen the film Suffragette with Carrie Mulligan, but that is about suffrage in the UK. Exactly. And it's, a, it's a drama. It's it's fine. It's but... dramatized. Yes. Um, I did spend some time. I have spent uh, a, not a significant, but a fair amount of time in New Zealand and learned a little bit about Kate Shepard, who was mm-hmm. a trailblazer. I kind of probably know more about women's suffrage in New Zealand than in the country that I was born and raised in America. That that makes a lot of sense, Kara, because New Zealand is the first. Yeah. It's the first to give women the vote. So they're very, very proud of it. They just celebrated their 150th, I believe, uh, or 125th, um, 125th, I think, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. anniversary. And, um, you know, that's immensely um, exciting and um, they're, again, rightfully proud. So I'm not surprised that that was something that you learned quickly spending any time there. Absolutely. And then I, I also know that, you know, the 19th Amendment was ratified in 1920. Which well, was there you're, in, you're way ahead of where I was. <laughs> in my mind, that's still so long ago. But then when you actually start to contextualize that year against other really important things that were happening in history, you realize, no, that was not that long ago. We're on, we're at the 99th anniversary now, right? We're coming up. Well, to on... give you a little more context, mm-hmm. my mother was born around then. Wow. So it yeah. is not very far at all. No, this is not, this is single generational. This is not, yeah. you know, the distant, distant this past. Is, this is people's mothers or grandmothers and, uh, and you know, part of, of young, very young Americans, their great grandparents, but it's not very far at all. Ugh. It's just incredible. So, and it's, as you said, I think that one of the most important things that you kind of mentioned is that the story in our mind is sort of one of like the trailblazing women who did what they had to do and they made sure their voices were heard. And then all of a sudden everything was different and everything was better. And that's history. It's not that clean. Oh, no, it's not. (laughs) So I would love to hear a little bit about some of the things, especially, you know, obviously in podcast form, it's always interesting. You know, sometimes we like to kind of go through a book semi-chronologically. Sometimes we like to just talk about certain characters that spoke to you and and try and whet people's appetite for being able to dive in deeper. And other times I like to know, you know, just what some of the things were that as you were doing all of this research and uncovering things and translating things from a more academic point of view from journal articles into a more popular voice, you know, what were the things that really spoke to you and that you were just blown away by learning? So I think kind of however you want to take this, I'm sure you've done so many interviews at this point. (laughs) And I would, you know, I, I would hate to just kind of ask you to recapitulate all the things that you've been recapitulating before. So maybe something that's um, that's a little different is just to come in at it a little bit backward. You know, what were some of the first things that when you were researching this made you go, why the hell didn't I know that? Why doesn't everybody know that? Uh, there were so many times that that happened. And just to, to give you an idea, um, I, I did use uh, the, the excellent scholarship that's been done and, mm-hmm. and all those journal articles. But mostly I use primary sources. And mm. that makes a difference. I mean, that's the bread and butter of uh, any historian or any popular historian. And to see the, the actual documents, the letters, the memos, the scribbles on, in the margins, um, those give a context and give a sense of character. And 
The other goal I had for this book, besides unearthing our our history in this, a very pivotal part of our history, was to, as you say, not just make this the story uh, that, uh, that we even think we know, which is Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony came down from a cloud and declared <laughs> women's suffrage, um, but to show what the fight really was like and to give an idea of what those, um, there's three generations of women who are deeply involved in this, almost four generations. And who are some of these people that you've never heard of before? Mm-hmm. Who are some of the local leaders? Who are some of the African-American leaders? I wanted to to bring the voices, and, and again, I wasn't able to do anything like a comprehensive uh, survey of all suffragists in every part of the nation, but I did want to give a sense of what the scope of this was while telling a story. So I didn't want it to be a textbook. Uh, even though it's based on primary sources, I didn't want it to read like this is, as my agent often says, this is good for you. Um, it wasn't to be, a, this is a good for you book um, that you need to know this. Well, you yeah. do know it, but I wanted to make it very palatable. So I wanted to tell it in the form of a story. And and that's how I structure the book. And I wanted you to follow characters. And, and so there are three main characters, three main women, and they represent different wings of the movement and of the argument, uh, both for and against women's suffrage. And then I surround them with the, the other actors in this drama, both in that last fight, which happens to take place in Nashville, Tennessee, in the summer of 1920. So I try to plunge the reader into Nashville, into the heat of Nashville, into the anxiety that's surrounding this, this vote of the legislature, and then take them through all the, all the days that, that um, this transpires. But I also wanted the reader to understand these women who are suffragists as people, as people who are flawed, who are idealistic, who are vain, who are uh, hardworking, who are brilliant, who are um, have rivalries, I wanted you to understand that this is a movement of people and how they worked and how amazing it was that they were able to accomplish what they did, uh, yeah. their shortcomings, their moral compromises because it's not a squeaky clean movement in any way. So I wanted to to bring this out again, the, the humanity of these people and show that history doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens by people believing in an idea, being in, having to encounter adversity in, in promoting that idea and then having to make compromises. So I, um, was very surprised by some of the things I discovered in my primary research. So I'm going through thousands of letters, mm-hmm. thousands of memos. One of the wonderful things is that the Tennessee State Archives has preserved all of the material that they had. The Carrie Cat, the leader of the um, mainstream suffragists who's down there for six weeks, they have all those notes and, and the letters she wrote back and forth. And combining that with 
other resources at the Library of Congress, um, at the Knoxville Library, at, at other regional and national libraries, I could piece together what happened. And I have this correspondence uh, that goes on daily. I have telegrams that go between the suffrage organizers in Tennessee and Washington. I have the letters of the Republican and Democratic National Committee because the presidential candidates, uh, it's a presidential election year. And so they get involved. The governor's papers, the governor of Tennessee, um, who plays a big role in this. And so I have this mass of primary documents, and I'm trying to piece together a, di- a story almost minute by minute of what happens. And um, so besides being surprised by some of the kind of daily shenanigans that happen, and uh, there really are some amazing shenanigans, <laughs> um, but there's, there's deeper and broader themes that come out. And I was surprised by by several of them. And and I think, again, because I start almost as a blank slate, um, in some ways I could mirror what my most of my readers will um, feel when they encounter this, because I was surprised. So, for example, I was surprised to learn that there was such strong corporate opposition to women mm. voting. Um, both mm-hmm. at the state level, sometimes at the city level, um, and certainly when attempting to become a federal law in the Constitution. And that surprised me. I Again, I don't think we think of women's suffrage as having any relation to the other strong national impulses and national um, problems that are having happening at the time. And we, again, we think it kind of dropped down from heaven, but it didn't. It was buffeted by economic anxieties, by political anxieties, racial anxieties. And so that was very surprising to me to to find that these, um, that this dark money was coursing through the anti-suffrage movement. Well, and the funny thing is, I don't think we often think of the 19, you know, 10s, even before that, like the late 1800s and the early 1900s as having corporations. Like, of course there were corporations, but we think of, we, we contextualize in this very like old timey way. And we think that, you know, this kind of global multinational corporate lobbying and things like that is a very like modern phenomenon, but it's really not. No. In fact, um, the, the rapacious corporations, the trusts, the monopolies, were broken up uh, at the beginning of the century or some attempt was made. That was the whole you know, uh, reform movement, the progressive movement, was to try to stem the kind of corporate uh, consolidation of power and money. I think it's a, a very interesting time to look at now as we see some of those same um, dangerous trends being tolerated of, of you know, corporate... Um, again, uh, consolidation, uh, writing much, many parts of our legislation, mm-hmm. trying to, um, avert, uh, scrutiny by the government. We see all that happening again, the inequality, the, the income inequality. Um, that was something that was very, very prevalent and very, um, important driver of politics at the turn of the century. 
So I think it's a, a very um, analogous time to our time now. And the railroads, the liquor industry, the textile industries, all of these are very major economic forces in America. And in some states really own the legislatures. And they've, you know, bribed or in, in other ways influenced legislation in these states for a long time, including Tennessee. Um, and so what you see is when the suffrage movement is entering into this final stage, this final precipice of, of becoming part of the Constitution, becoming national law, everyone comes out to Tennessee to fight it, who has been fighting it at the state levels for many years. So you do have um, the textile manufacturers against this and um, liquor interests, the railroad interests. And I explain why they all have their, their reasons. It's going to be bad for business, they feel, including, you know, including the textile manufacturers who fear that if women, um, like mothers, can vote, they might want to impose uh, or abolish child labor in factories. And these, uh, these factories depended on child labor because it was cheap. So yeah. you see these I mean, reasons, um, you know, they have their reasons, but um, they don't want women anywhere near the ballot box. So I think maybe it's wise to pull back because I'm explaining kind of little bits and details. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just say that corporate opposition was one thing that really surprised me that came out in the material. Again, I'm reading the national newspapers and the regional newspapers at this time. So I see the news and, and the kind of things that are happening uh, at this time. Yeah. And um, the other is the racial dimension. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that race played a role in the suffrage movement from the very beginning, that it's really a a daughter or sibling of the abolition movement and that that history is very much uh, becomes a part of the story in Nashville. And the other is that there were organized um, organizations, <laughs> organized organizations um, <laughs> against of women opposing yeah. women suffrage. And that really shocked me. I yes. <laughs> and yet it was very strong. Um, again, a minority, I would say, but a, a very vocal minority. Um, it, they were mu they were once the majority, of course, uh, the beginning until probably around turn of the century. Most women really didn't support it or didn't actively support it because it was such a a radical notion. Yeah, it was too taboo, and and you know, it, it, it's so hard to put yourself in that place. I mean, I think that this is one of the most important skills that a really um, dedicated journalist and especially um, a, a historian has, which is to try to look at the zeitgeist through the eyes of the people who were living it at the time and try not to understand it through a lens that is so easy in hindsight to judge and justify and and um, sort of like put that layer on top of exactly. the Zeitgeist at the time was intolerant of women having power in this way. And so yeah. 
I'm interested in your take on like there are that sliver that you talked about, which became increasingly minimized and increasingly in the minority. It's it still exists. It's still in the minority today. I mean, there are still women um, on like extreme conservative conservative talk shows, and and you'll still see them writing sometimes that they are um, they don't think that the vote was good for society. Well, I think we need to to broaden that a, a little bit because the thing that I came to understand mm-hmm. in reading the um, literature of the anti-suffragists, yes. so the things they were writing um, from the probably they don't begin to organize uh, the the women anti-suffrage movement. The, the male anti-suffrage movement has always been there, yeah. but the, the women don't begin to organize. Uh, against suffrage until it begins to to gain some traction hmm. because before that it was like oh what a silly idea this isn't going to happen yeah and don't need to waste my time women, you know we're either uh uninformed or afraid of of saying oh yeah well i think it's a good idea so um it wasn't anything to to be against for a long time hmm. when they do organize what you see is the themes of their fears um, and it's very, very interesting and instructive to realize why, what and why they are um, fearing. And what I realize is it is that suffrage was not just a political issue. It was never just a political issue. It was never just an election law change or a cha- even a constitutional change. Mm-hmm. It meant a cultural change a societal change, um, a, a shift in women's role in society. So it was much broader than just voting. It was, does a woman have any role outside of the home? That's what was being debated. And so you can see that's a much bigger and more emotional issue than just voting. As, as important as voting is, this was what is a woman's role in society? And should she be allowed, (laughs) I use that, allowed to have any role beyond being a wife and mother? And that was really the problem At that time, the subject and object there, I mean, being allowed really does, unfortunately, it plays, it works. Because society up to that point and still to this day, historically, in almost every major historical society that we've ever documented, has been patriarchal. And there have been, you know, men in positions of power. There are examples where women have broken barriers. And there are examples where women have been um, able to hold uh, equal kind of weight in the legislature and things like that. But especially looking to these kind of Western societies, men were in charge. Well, absolutely. And of course, it's only men who can decide whether women are going to get suffrage mm-hmm. at, at all levels, whether it's um, there, are, there are basically two ways or several ways that suffrage can be conferred under the Constitution. And one is um, through a state change in the election laws. So states are in control of, of elections, as, as we know, because we're still having trouble with states who don't want to allow everyone eligible to vote. Yep. Voter ID laws, all these different veiled ways. Yeah. You bet. You bet. It's, it's all part of the same. But 
um, if the state legislature changed or allowed women to vote, as they did from the beginning in Wyoming, let's say, they come in as a territory in 1869, and they allowed women to vote, and they insist over the objections of Congress to be allowed to let Wyoming women vote. And they do. They come into the union as a women's suffrage allowing state. Of course, there's only about 12 women in, in Wyoming at the time, but they do. And it's, it's groundbreaking and it's very, very important. And then the Western states, some, a few Western states follow and then, and then, um, suffrage is looked on much more sympathetically in the Western states, including California and Washington state, um, than it was in the East. But what, what's, um, that's by state, either state legislative action or by a popular referendum. So you have to, the, the legislature has to agree um, to allow a referendum where of course only the men could vote. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, but that's the way states like California and Washington and Oregon and Colorado and then later Illinois and New York and, and other states finally actually do give women the vote before the 19th Amendment because there's an upswell in in approval even among the men in their in their state. So you can get it by yeah. popular referendum or by legislative action. Or the suffragists knew it wasn't going to happen in many states ever, um, a constitutional amendment, which takes precedence over state law and says all women in every state in every election of every race and color, which, you know, it doesn't say that, but it says all women. And that includes. It's sad, though, that we needed, obviously, to specify. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, So basically, my story takes place at the moment when this becomes really possible. Mm -hmm. It's by the summer of 1920. 35 states have ratified the 19th Amendment, which, by the way, had sat in Congress for 40 years. 40 years. So this was not a new idea. (laughs) Uh Yeah. Um, And before that, of course, there'd been all kinds of uh, other tactics taken. It's, It's introduced into Congress in 1878. But that was only because the suffragists had failed in getting it through the courts or uh, getting it through the states individually. So they had already been working at it for, for 30 years when they get this um, amendment into Congress. And then it is stalled there for 40 years. And it finally comes out in 1919. And in fact, we're about to celebrate the centennial of it yeah. being passed by Congress. Ugh, and then incredible. it has to the states and three quarters of the states have to have to ratify I think it's important to also realize, you know, we talk about Seneca Falls and people don't really, I certainly didn't know what Seneca Falls meant. Well, and not just the American listeners who are not up on their history, but also this podcast at least has a fair amount of international listeners as well. well. So maybe it would be good to take some time to talk about Seneca Falls right now. Well, also to to talk about that, this was not just a movement in the United States by any means. We we mentioned New Zealand, which was clearly a pioneer. But by mm-hmm. the time uh, the 19th Amendment was passed, 26 other nations had given women in their country the vote. 26. We're the 27th. 
not yeah. pioneers by any stretch of the imagination, including Germany and Russia had already given mm-hmm. women the vote after World War One. So it's this an international moment uh, movement, and in fact. Carrie Chapman Cadd, who's one of the heroines of my book, is also the president, um, co-president of the uh, uh, International Women's Suffrage Alliance, which is the uh, international umbrella for all mm-hmm. suffrage workers. So they're working in... Which, of course, the yeah, the American movement was not happening in a vacuum, as you just said. And obviously, many of these women were... Yeah, they were organizing with other women. They were learning from from what was happening in those other nations where there were successes and where there were failures. Exactly. They learned from each other and they would meet every, every, uh, I think it was two years um, to mm-hmm. have a, a great convention and, and really have reports and learn from each other, get to know each other, help each other. Um, it was really a very interesting international movement. And there's this wonderful photograph of a 1917 suffrage march down fifth Avenue in New York, where, um, there's a woman from from Japan in a kimono mm-hmm. marching down <laughs> marching down the, the avenue. So um, so Seneca Falls in 1848. Yeah. So this was a long time before the 19th Amendment. Let's yes, be clear. It was. 19th yeah. Amendment, 1920. So it was 72 years. <laughs> and and again, p- women have been talking about this for much longer than that. There had been calls for it informally, but mm-hmm. this is the first sort of um, public, really public declaration um, that women should have the vote. And it's it's still very localized. It's um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott and a few of their friends plan this in five day, with five days notice. They've been mm-hmm. thinking about it for years, but they call it, you know, it's almost like <laughs> um, it's hard to call a dinner party five days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they, they put a notice in the paper and 300 people show up. But what's so fascinating about it is what women could not do at this point, And of course could not do it. It, it got improved over the decades before 1920, but some of it is still not resolved. So for instance, um, Elizabeth, and I describe this in the book, um, Elizabeth Stanton um, draws up a, a list of grievances mm-hmm. And those, if you read them, I, I encourage uh, everyone to read them because they're amazingly modern. Um, she talks about not having equal pay for equal work. Yeah. Of not having equal opportunity in the in education or the professions. Ugh, th- things we're still still struggling with. Day oh yeah, to day. not having financial equality. Um, you know, at that point, women could not own property. If you were a married woman, everything you own, even if you had inherited it from your family, even if you'd earned it yourself, belonged to your husband. Oh. Your children, your children belong to your husband. I recently found out that in some states, even up until somewhat recently, if um, a woman was raped, the court case that was drawn against the rapist, and I'm not talking about domestic rape, even though that happened all the time, but it, it was somewhat provable and a woman were raped by a stranger or by, or by somebody else, not her husband, that the court case that was drawn up against the rapist was against the husband, not the wife. Hmm. Because... He, the views of the legislator uh, of the legislative um, uh, documents at the time were that women were still chattel. 
we were owned by our husbands. That's right. And so a woman had no, if there was a divorce, women had no custodial rights over her children. Yeah. And a sin against a woman was actually a sin against her husband. Mm -hmm. And um, she had no right to testify in a court of law. So, of course, if if he cheats on her or if he abuses her or if he beats uh-huh. her or or beats the children, she her she silenced. Yes, that's right. She has she cannot bring suit mm-hmm. and she cannot. Uh, this is a mid 19th century. She cannot bring suit. She cannot testify. Of course, she cannot serve on a jury. Yeah. So right there. So, I mean, a fundamental yeah. uh, civil inequality. No women on a jury. Yeah. Well, that actually, that continues. That's a state law. So even though the 19th Amendment opens up the possibility for women, and that's a big part of the argument, they um, many states do not actually implement it into the 50s. Wow. And even still, I mean, this is something that's paralleled. It's it's a bit of a tangent, but I just rewatched 13th, the Ava DuVernay mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. documentary on Netflix again while I was traveling and, you know, talking about kind of the new Jim Crow and, and yeah. overpopulated prisons and all that. I mean, this was an issue even after the 13th Amendment that black men were kept off of juries. I mean, mm-hmm. you oh, know, yeah. it's and oh, it absolutely. still happens to this day. And how um, can we have equal protection under the law if our own juries don't represent the people who are on right. trial? Right. And women could not be on juries again um some until pretty recently. Yeah. But of course they could be tried for crimes and convicted. Yep, right. You would not have a, a jury of your peers. Never. Nope. So, um so you have to understand what women couldn't do. Um, that that precipitates a meeting like Seneca Falls. Yeah. And Susan Anthony, uh, Susan Anthony isn't in the movement yet. I met uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. One of her calls is for the franchise, for the vote. And the the other reformers there. So remember, the people who come to this are going to be activists. Um, and they are really nervous about this. They think it's really outrageous. And maybe she, they actually ask her to withdraw that demand uh, because they think it's a step too far uh, mm. for their their nascent movement. And um, it's actually Frederick Douglass who is in attendance at Seneca Falls. Again, one of those, I had no idea that he was there. And he's the one who gets up and defends her demand and says, you must do this and convinces the other reluctant participants at Seneca Falls to support the call for the franchise. Um, so what we have to understand is that many of these women, Stanton, Susan Anthony, Lucretia Mott, Lucy Stone, are abolition workers before the suffrage workers. Yeah. So they're working for the for the um, freeing of slaves, for the abolition of slavery, and then for the 13th Amendment. But then there is a, a split after Reconstruction when black men get the vote, but women do not. They've all been working, including Frederick Douglass, for everyone to get the vote. So this is a big rift, and I deal with that a lot in the book. So anyway, I, I really recommend reading the Seneca Falls Declaration because it'll just seem so modern, uh, including including talking about um, a double standard in morality between mm-hmm. men and women, and that men have uh, caused women to lose their confidence by, by um, treating them so shabbily. Hmm. Yes, it's really an eye opener. It's not some dusty, fusty uh, document. It'll speak to us today. But the reason that it speaks to us today is because we haven't 
handled this stuff. You know, it's, it's not yeah. like it's like, oh, she was so ahead of her time. It's like, no, we're just so backward. Yeah. And that's that, the real that, frustration. That, you can definitely look at it like yeah. that. All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank a brand new sponsor this week, Myro. Myro is actually making deodorant better. And I'm going to tell you exactly why, because it looks as good as it smells. It's hardworking. It's long lasting. Zero percent aluminum, zero percent parabens. All the ingredients are clinically tested for safety and efficacy. But here's my favorite part. You go online, you pick your scent, you pick the color of your case. And every three months, you get a refresh that's sent right to your door. You can switch scents, you can press pause or stop literally anytime you want. But here's the kicker. The case is refillable. It's refillable, guys. So much less waste. Reducing plastic by about 50% versus typical drugstore deodorant. So you can feel good and you can feel <laughs> fresh while you're doing it. Um, I love Myro. I think it smells really good. I, it actually kind of looks better too. Not that, I mean, it some people care about that. I don't know. If you have it sit out on your dresser or on your bathroom um, vanity, it's it's like a good looking deodorant case. It doesn't look like the crap that you buy at the drugstore. Uh, but like I said, it smells really good. It actually works. And I'm feeling really good about my usage of it because, gosh, how terrible do you feel every time you throw an empty deodorant container into the trash can? Myra solves those problems for you. So get this, you're going to get 50% off your first order and you can get started for only $5. All you've got to do is go to mymyro.com slash nerdy and use the promo code nerdy. Once again, that's mymyro, M-Y-M-Y-R-O.com slash nerdy and use the promo code nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. I do want to kind of take a moment to, to kind of put some of the nuance on the shelf for a second, you know, the, the, the corporate interests or, or what was um, specifically listed in the grievances. Or, and, and I do want to get back to that. But I want to take a moment to just talk a little bit about the fundamentals of the zeitgeist and about the fundamental drive of not just suffrage, because I think that that's a little more self-explanatory, um, but of pressure, anti-suffrage pressure, that this, this fundamental... Um, kind of sociological and historical need to suppress and the types of people where I think any movement takes all types, right? You've got the really extreme bleeding edge radicals, even sometimes the people who advocate for like violence in an effort to make sure the voices are heard all the way back to the people who are much more into like civil rebellion, all the way back to the people who are just kind of like, I don't want to be bothered. It sounds like a good idea, but I'm, you know, I don't want to muss my hair in, um, in engaging. But I do think it takes all types for a, for a movement like that. What, what I'm really interested in kind of settling or, or discussing for a few minutes right now is what was the, the air? Where were people's heads? Why was the idea of women having a vote so radical? Like, I want to try and take our minds and transport ourselves back to a time when not just women, but also um, black and Latino and minority Americans had so little power. And it's no, it's really no surprise to me that the same activists who were abolitionists were working on women's suffrage because you see the same thing today. Progressives are progressives and there are different stripes. And sometimes people are only fundamentally interested in a single topic because it's their core interest. But 
across the board, you actually see a lot of allies in groups that are trying to secure civil rights, equal rights for everybody. Um, absolutely. So, uh, again, the, the movement, because it spans seven decades, goes through a lot of oh, uh, amazing. Yeah, mental space and, and historical uh, time. And so um, the the women and men, and again, there are always wonderful male champions of, of uh, women's equal rights. The, where they start in the mid-19th century, it's, um, it's a somewhat different cast of characters by 1920. Not to say they're not um, what we might call progressive, but they are, um, they have their own, uh, causes and yeah, their own agendas, of, right. Own mm-hmm. set of agendas. Exactly. Um, and so what you have to look at is in 1920 was in some ways a similar time to what we are facing today. And that was, again, one of the surprises for me, I wrote this book um, about the suffrage movement. Again, it takes place in Nashville in the summer of 1920. It's very fast-paced in that you're you're following the legislature, you're following the activists, you're following the presidential candidates who um, have to weigh in or not on this. Um, mm-hmm. So you're, you're you're following this kind of suspenseful uh, drama uh, taking place in Nashville, but. I'm also able to pull back and tell you how they got to Nashville. And that, you know, begins um, um, before Seneca Falls and takes you through. And so you understand the movement. By the time, um, you know, you're, you're halfway into the book, you really understand where these people come from. Yeah, the context of their time. Of their time, exactly. And so, so that's, I think, very important. But... What happens in 1920 is also colored by what's happening, you know, in the in the world and in the country. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't the ratification process doesn't happen in a vacuum either, and that's important to know. So what is happening is there is great anxiety about immigration. We've had a huge wave of immigration of immigrants, and there's a lot of uh, anxiety about that. And in fact, Congress is poised uh, in the next few years, we'll close our borders to many um, Southern Europeans. Um, and there's already a uh, Mexican exclusion. There's already uh, an Asian exclusion act. And they will close the borders that will last for another generation or two. And um, it, it has a, a profound effect during World War II when when those same restrictions are in place and those refugees who need to leave Europe cannot. So we see this anxiety about immigrants, about, um, you know, making racial distinctions between immigrants, just like now. Um, And you see that percolating. You see a great um, anxiety about labor because industrialization is moving even faster and people are losing their jobs to mm-hmm. automation and to immigrants. And so there Gosh, are, Gosh, it's all so relevant right now. Oh, yeah. oh it's amazing. 2000 two labor strikes throughout the nation in, in the year preceding all this happening uh, around the suffrage uh, amendment. 
So you have you have labor very much in turmoil. You have industries in turmoil because again, technological advances are changing the economy. So the railroad industry um, is very concerned about uh, its prerogatives. It's um, it needs favors from the legislature and Congress. It's just coming out of nationalization during 1920, uh, during pardon me, during World War One, mm-hmm. and um, and it's being um, threatened by the automobile, which is now in ascendance, and legislators are having to decide whether they're going to spend money on building tracks as they have for decades or building roads. And so the railroad people are saying, "Look, we you know we own these legislators." Um, if women get in there, they might elect others and we'll have to pay them off. So there's enormous anxiety about that sort of thing, of, of technology changing our economy. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Um, there's uh, enormous anxiety about, uh, again, women's roles. They've been entering the workforce more uh, at the, towards the turn of the, uh, as the century turned. And also, of course, World War I throws millions of women into roles that they had never had before in the workforce because the men have been called away and that they've really stepped up. And so women's roles outside the home was already changing. And that made people very, very, very nervous. And they wanted them all to go home um, afterwards, after their service in the war and in many, many different industries. So that's happening. And you have racial tensions because the Jim Crow laws have become more onerous in the Southern states. The Great Migration has begun. It's just very early in the Great Migration. But um, um, Black citizens are moving north. And so suddenly, northern cities who didn't have very large Black populations in Ohio and Michigan and Illinois are, and, you know, northern, major northern cities who have industry are suddenly have larger populations of, of, for the most part, uh, not highly educated, but but very dedicated workers. But suddenly they have populations who can vote and they get nervous about black women being able to vote. And of course, in the Jim Crow South, they don't, black men have been disenfranchised for decades. uh, And now they're worried about having to deal with black women as voters. So you've got all this going on. And so psychologically, you know, what, it's, it's so frustrating. It's like, I don't even really fundamentally know what I'm asking because I'm asking a question that might be unanswerable, which really comes down to like, is it fear? Is it just fundamental fear of losing a power structure that had been in place for hundreds of years? Like, what is it that was so powerfully distasteful or so powerfully um, inconceivable that women and especially black women would be able to go to the polls? Well, I think it's, again, um, in in the South and in, in some northern areas, that is a um, you know a fundamental change, and um, you know as as unfortunate as it is, it was it was a real a real sentiment among some, not all, of course, but but among some. 
this was sexism and racism, like yes, fundamentally. But, but the more fundamental, remember, uh, black women do not make up uh, a very large section of the population outside of the South. And so the idea of women voting in general is also the, what's so frightening. And I bring it back to the fact that it's not just political, it's not just electoral, it is cultural and societal. And if when you see the anti-suffrage messages, it's all about what will men do when women wear the pants in the family. And so I, I reproduce a few of these anti-suffrage propaganda materials, mm. and they may seem hilarious to us now, but we see the germ of, of fear in there too. So it's all about, again, showing the pants. There's another um, <laughs> cartoon I show that, that shows a woman with a votes for women's sash, wearing a sash with a whip and her husband cowering under the bed. Oh, and this is um, called bed of trouble. And this is what's going to happen in your home when your woman... Uh, your wife, your mother can um, have equal political rights. And do you think that this comes from this kind of like entrenched understanding that like once somebody can actually speak up and act out and kind of retaliate retaliate against all the horrible shit I've done to them over their years, like they're going to. I mean, wasn't that really the fear with the 13th Amendment was that these like freed slaves were going to like get theirs, like they were going to come back double time for the white masters? That was a minor part of it. Most of it was that an economic structure was being dismantled besides. Absolutely. Yeah. Money. Money is really powerful there. And same thing with women, right? Domestic labor was free. Well, yes, but it was more that this was going to affect your private life. Mr. American, this is not just going to be a change in who can vote. It's not just going to be an idea that you're going to see women at the polls or in the jury box with you. This is going to affect you in your home. Mm. And your wife is likely to abandon the home and the family. And there are many, many anti-suffrage illustrations showing dad comes home from work and finds a note saying, I've gone to work for suffrage or I've gone to vote and the children are hungry and crying. um, There's many, many, many uh, illustrations, blatant illustrations of this. Isn't that the funniest thing? How, how, how like minimally veiled they are when you look back with historical context on your side? They were not subtle. (laughs) <laughs> and, and it's always a picture. I mean, I, I show this when I when I give a talk. I I show these illustrations, and I say, "You notice the theme here? The theme is Dad is going to be left with screaming babies in almost <laughs> every one. Mom is sailing out of the house to go vote. It's called Election Day, and Dad is left with these screaming children. Oh my and, gosh! And that's, that's like the scariest thing in the world to that. Like, right. oh no, that's unfathomable. Exactly. And again, it's going to emasculate men, mm-hmm. and that is a powerful psychological um, warning. And um, there's, you know, again, over and over, this is all about um, male anxiety mm-hmm. and, and ego. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. And and your home is going to be uh, disrupted, and you're going and, to lose authority and control. Right. And, and the anti-suffragists also say this is 
going to be bring the moral downfall of the nation. So there is a, a kind of a deep religious influence there, like a puritanical influence there as well. Yes, yes, there definitely is. And, and there are clergy, there are some clergy who are wonderfully supportive, but many who are not. And they use biblical arguments to yeah. say women's suffrage, women's equality goes against God's plan mm-hmm. in their view because she made uh, Adam to be dominant over Eve and anything else is just against God's plan. And so they use the biblical um, arguments against it. So you have these really powerful, powerful uh, societal forces opposed to women voting, clergy, politicians who are scared of this. Um, you know, they don't know how women are going to vote. They don't know if they're going to be attractive enough to, to women. Suddenly they have to think about their appeal to women. <laughs> you know, do they dress well enough? Oh, yeah, this becomes an anxiety. Um, oh, man. Uh, the political parties who are afraid this could be disruptive. 27 million women are eligible to vote if the 19th Amendment passes. So you have that on top of the societal and then the very practical things. And one of the um, anti suffrage arguments is this is going to be expensive. We're going to need double the amount of paper and pencils. <laughs> They actually use that as an argument. So, again, I finished this book before the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. So this was not something I'd thought about. I mean, there there were clearly some some uh, themes that were seemed very timely and and evergreen, unfortunately. But then, of course, we're plunged into a whole other psychological and societal and political um, world after that 2016 election. And suddenly those themes are really come into very sharp focus. And I think one of the things my readers tell me is that it becomes so clear to them, even though, again, this is written before the election. So I'm not, I'm not manipulating this material in any way. um, But that, it becomes clear that this is talking about today in many ways. Well, and the thing is, it never wasn't. It's just so much more overt now. Like, it's just the things that always were are now. Well, um, no, I I actually disagree on that. You do? Okay, I'm interested to hear your take on this. I think there are assaults on um, a free press, on uh, rights of citizenship, besides uh, blatant, voting restrictions, which have been sort of given the green light, both by the Supreme Court eviscerating Voting Rights Act, but also by administrative actions. So, or attitudes uh, saying it's okay. It's okay. Um, And of course, women's rights. And the truth is, you're right. I mean, there is a difference between legislative or executive action and the internal kind of uh, morals or feelings of of your everyday citizen. And so, yes, I, I guess I was trying to make the argument that these mentalities have always existed, but when they're given a voice legislatively and when they're given a voice um, in the executor, they become much more virulent. Yes. Yes. I, th- I think that's true. And, and I think what my readers tell me, and, and I'm both horrified for our nation, but mm. uh, glad that the book strikes a very modern chord is, you know, we're still in this fight um, women are still in the fight for their rights, um, but also to broaden this and saying our voting rights, our 
the pillar of our democracy is in danger again. And so I want my readers to read this book and say, I've got to work for voting rights for everyone now, for every citizen, not women. Women aren't threatened uh, for being women anymore. But if you are in a minority community, uh, your vote is being uh, threatened in many, many ways. And that's what we have to fight for. This is a book about voting rights. And so I'm uh, doing all I can to make sure that I, that that part of the story um, becomes actionable right now. There are, there are ways that we both have to raise our voice and also uh, be out in the community, making sure that these restrictions on voting rights are not allowed to stand. Yeah. And when you say, you know, that this is a book that's fundamentally about voting rights and that your voice, the the kind of the the advocate and the activist voice, the through line that goes through there, especially when you're giving your talks and you're doing the work around it, sitting here and, and chatting with me today, that it's fundamentally about voting rights. Agree or disagree, voting rights are fundamentally human rights. Um, well, I mean, yeah, in a democracy, they are. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, I can't say that that's universal because there are many uh, nations where it's not true. Yeah. But um, sh- should it be? Yes. But but we are we are founded as a democracy, a uh, government by the people, and we have not been living up to that for a long, long time. Um, so that I think that's the, the message I I have. But I do want to emphasize that this is not a book. This is not a polemical book in Mm -hmm, any way. mm -hmm. Um, You're not going to be reading arguments. You're not going to be reading um, dry history. uh, And you're not yelling at the reader. (laughs) You're telling telling a story. My, my, the most gratifying things I hear from, from my readers is it was a good read. Uh, It was fast paced. It was suspenseful. Uh, Again, my favorite thing is when people tell me, you know, I, I know how it ended because I vote, <laughs> but I got really nervous towards the end. And that that's really gratifying. And, and there are um, readers who thank me for writing my terrific novel. Hilarious. And I, I, I love I take that. that as a compliment. Absolutely. Uh, it like a novel, but it does have uh, 750 endnotes if you care to see this. <laughs> <laughs> And so, Elaine, I have to ask you, because we're, we're starting to run low on time, and, and I am going to close the episode with, like, the two questions I always close each episode with. But before I do that, I have to ask you, like, what what is it personally about you? Because you've written a, uh, another book previous to this one um, involving history, involving women. You know, you read on your website, you read on Wikipedia and things that you are a writer, that you're a journalist, but really you do have this deep historian um, focus to your work. What is it that drives you to, to retell these stories of history in a compelling way? Like you're so, um, like you're so talented at doing. Well, you know, Kara, I'm, I'm trained as a journalist, I have a graduate degree in journalism, and I, I worked as a journalist most of my career. Mm-hmm. And um, so I find true stories, fact-based stories, very powerful. Um, I love, I love fiction. I read a lot of fiction. But I do find a story that is true, that really happened to be mm-hmm. a- enormously powerful. And so the idea of narrative history, which is uh, marrying um, uh, literary technique with um, historical accuracy is, is just sort of the perfect place for me because uh, sometimes I, I call it journalism with dead people. Uh, <laughs> in that 
um, I can use the sources I have, and those are letters, personal notes, um, uh, speeches, reports, newspaper articles, and I can get the voice of the characters. Um, those are my quotes. And I have to verify, just as a journalist has to do. I have to corroborate. I have to put it in context. I have to tell a story. And so I find my training as a journalist, and you'll find that a lot of really great narrative history is written by former journalists mm-hmm. or, or practicing journalists. There is a, uh, a um, reverence for the facts and a reverence for digging, and, and whether that's digging um, in the present tense or digging through archives, uh, there's some of the same skills. And so I find bringing these stories which have not been told, and I am drawn to these stories that have not been told, because I think it's important that we know about them. Just as you find a scoop or just as you find a a journalistic story that nobody has covered, there's there's a real uh, satisfaction in that and and a real importance because you're bringing another another set of voices uh, into our national consciousness. So I find that my training as a journalist is is very helpful and, and helps me write in a lively fashion and makes this history, I hope, come alive. Um, and I, you know, I do find that to be very, very gratifying. Um, uh, sometimes I wish I could really do an interview with, with one of my characters, yeah. but I have a lot, usually have a lot of their written um, sometimes they write a memoir or there is a biography that was written in their lifetime. And so I can, I can, um, kind of make them into a whole character, but I, I do find these stories, especially ones about, um, parts of our history that have been neglected, especially ones about women, mm-hmm. um, to be very compelling. I mean, I, I have to say, I completely agree. I think that you have a real talent for telling these stories in a very narrative, compelling style, so that even though there is this fundamental kind of philosophical, we, I mean, we could sit here for a whole other hour and talk about philosophically why it's so important for us to really understand history and for us to understand history through the eyes and the voices of the people who lived it and the people who were actually affected by it. But even beyond, you know, that philosophical or that even maybe a little bit advocate, activist bent, um, as we said before, this is a compelling story at its core. And even though it's a story Story that we all probably do need to know and should know. It's not like reading a textbook. It, it's it's really reading a page turner story. And I'm so grateful for people like yourself that have the gift to be able to to give us those things that we just we don't necessarily have access to um, as everyday readers. So number one, thank you so much for writing this book. Number two, thank you so much for for taking the time to talk to me. And number three, are you willing to answer my my last two questions? Oh, absolutely. All right. I'm, I'm actually super interested in what your take is going to be. Okay. So at the close of every podcast, I ask all my guests, number one, 
in looking to the future now, not to the past, but to the future, um, in whatever context is relevant to you as we speak right now, number one, what is the thing that keeps you up the most at night? The thing that you're most kind of legitimately concerned, maybe even a bit pessimistic, borderline cynical about something you're legitimately worried and, and not feeling good about. And on the flip side of that, to end things on a more positive note, what are you genuinely, authentically optimistic for? Hmm. I know. <laughs> it's so evil. <laughs> oh, oh. I, I do worry that as a nation, we seem to be willing to allow uh, fundamentally undemocratic procedures or attitudes to prevail or to, to take hold. And we, I see this in state legislatures, um, which I find very troubling. You know, when you see what some of the state legislatures, some of the, um, both the, the policy that the laws that are being promulgated there and also the, um, gerrymandering that's going on, yeah. the restrictive healthcare choices being made. I think we as a nation have to decide what is a good life and what do we want our nation to stand for? And, and I think we're, we're kind of foggy on that at the moment. Yeah. Um, and that, that does trouble me seeing the, the power that is wielded by um, moneyed interest by, how shall I say it? I don't want to say right wing, left wing, but by those who are afraid of democracy, are really afraid of our nation um, having a, a voice. And I don't mean this populist voice. I don't know what populist means. It's used in many, many different ways. I know. It's become so bastardized, I think. But I think I know what you mean. Like, like, like a fear of not sort of this veiled oligarchy that's existed for so long. Mm -hmm. This kind of a fear of the people who have power experiencing what democracy would really be like if everybody's voice were heard. Well, heard, but, but also the, there are you know, things like the erosion. I mean, here's a, it may seem arcane, um, mm -hmm. but we journalists are very concerned about the erosion of local journalism, local newspapers. Yeah. And it's not just, it's not just because so many talented, essential um, journalists are being laid off and are going to have to go into some other line of work. It's not exactly like coal mining. Mm -hmm. This is something that every, every a uh, small town and city and state needs. Yeah, um, and it's true. Our democracy will be much, much poorer and dangerously poorer for the closing of these newspapers. Now, this is not a a political decision. This is economic. But we have to decide what is important. And um, so, so I think that's one example. Besides, of course. Um, the restrictive um, laws being promulgated against women's bodies. Yeah. Uh, which Literally are, right now. Cannot be left to stand. So, yeah. but, but there are, you know, many, many other, um, you know, our education system being left to kind of rot from the inside. There are many ways that this expresses itself. 
Um, sometimes we don't connect the dots. Mm-hmm. I think there are many, many Americans who are frightened by this and and trying to find a way to uh, stem it or to improve it. But I think um, that's that's going to be a long term prospect. But meanwhile, things are eroding to a point. You know, it's almost like a, a bridge eroding, and at some point, you realize you've lost it. Yeah. So, so kind of on the flip side of that, is there anything really, when you think about this kind of deep kind of existential concern, is there anything that you see that really does feel like a light that you can uh, hold on to? Is, is there something that you're fundamentally sort of genuinely optimistic about? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Give me something good. <laughs> yeah, well, I am, you know, I've been very impressed with um, some of the young activists I've, I've read about and some I've met. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are some extraordinarily dedicated and um, fiercely committed and imaginative activists coming up in the next generation. Mm -hmm. And whether it's those brave young school children from Parkland um, who were, you know, gave me an incredible uh, hope and, uh, and pride watching what they did and continue to do. And are of course being thwarted by, by forces um, again and again, but they, they keeping at it. And, and I think that's a, a wonderful thing. But I also want to them to learn from the book and from other things that um, a sustained political strategy is what's going to bring us forward. Uh, we have to raise our voices and um, and protest and in um, demonstrate our, our strength in numbers, but we also have to figure out a, a political strategy. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the lessons that suffragists have taught, you know, teach us all. Um, and persistence. I think that's the other thing. The idea that things do not change for the better quickly. You don't make change in society or in politics uh, overnight. So it's not yeah. just a march. It's not just a demonstration. It's not just a GoFundMe campaign. It's It has to be sustained. And there has to be a sense of optimism and, and forward-looking um, and an idea of what we're working for not just what we're working against. So I think that uh, seeing my, my children's generation, which is uh, a bit older than the Parkland students, but still very committed to making a better society. And I hope they can maintain that optimism. Oh my gosh, so much good stuff in what you just said. I feel like I could unpack that for hours. But of course, um, you've been so gracious with your time. And um, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. I've, I've, I've absolutely learned a lot. Everybody, please go out now and check out the book. It's called The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. It's now available on paperback. Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Kara. Of course. And um, let me know, how can people find more of your work other than the book, which they can find anywhere that books are sold? Um, are you active on social media? Where can they read some of your journalism? How can they find out more about you? Yeah, um, um, I have a website, ElaineWeiss.com. It has some of the articles that I've written and op-ed pieces I've written um, in the last year. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't go deeply back into my journalism. But I think there's some interesting essays about um, even about the origins of Mother's Day, I wrote for the Daily Beast. There are pieces for the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Very um, cool. So I can 
that's a, a nice sampler of my journalism. And, uh, and then, of course, there's a lot of information about the book. And I'm touring around the country. I continue to have a really busy summer and fall. And, of course, next year is, is this suffrage centennial. Yeah. And I'll be on the road across the country. So uh, if you check the events calendar, um, I might be coming near you. And I hope to see you. Excellent. Well, Elaine, thank you so much for joining me. It was it was a real pleasure. Thank you. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Nerdy.